welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. We are going to begin, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the uh, the questions at the end. Make sure you get them in. I'm sure our chancellor would uh, would 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 give that announcement. Um, it, it's actually wonderful to to get a bunch of questions and and be put on the spot. And and uh, of course, uh, every once in a while, I may just answer. I don't know, but. Uh, and then, of course, then the next week, I think about how I may have been able to give a slightly better answer, at least, right? Ah, oh, what could I have said that would have been slightly better? But get your questions in. Um, we are now entering into what I uh, believe will be four lectures into the historical doctrine of the Trinity and how it was developed in the course of, of church history. And... I want to start with, uh, with a little bit of, of review in just considering the primitive church. And by the primitive church, I mean the church in the times of the uh, apostles and perhaps in the one or two generations that follow before we start getting some of the earliest apologists or writers that we have from the, uh, from the early church. And it's important that we understand that there is a, an historical development of the doctrine of Trinity, of the Trinity, but that this historical doc, uh, development is not the kind of development where they are putting together something that doesn't exist. It is rather the kind of development where through a series of dialogues, discussions, and outright fights, that there is a clarification of what we mean 
when we say certain things about God in his triune nature or the three persons, uh, what language to use to make careful distinctions. Uh, a lot of this really carried about or carried out to a point of clarification in the creeds where you're forced to use technical language uh, because unless you use that technical language, unless you say what you are not saying, you can't rule out the heresy. And you know the heresy is heresy, but people have a, a, an amazing ability to, um, to say, well, I agree with that when you, you know full well you're not in agreement. And this becomes a, a real problem when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, something so crucial and so fundamental to Christian doctrine. So in the primitive church, we're faced with a couple of realities that I have already touched on. The first is that they worship Jesus Christ. If you worship Jesus Christ, either you're an idolater or you believe he's God. Uh, you've got the, as I've mentioned before, the baptismal formula. You're baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you've got some, some of these Trinitarian basics right at the very heart of the experience of the Christian. And these things uh, are yet to be you know, developed in the crucible of, um, of, of the sort of the fighting and, and the, the heresies that would crop up. And yet it was the experience of the early church. What we're going to do with this first lecture, and, and I'm going to go through this. Um, I'm going to reduce the content a little bit when it comes to, I've got to stop somewhere. And so I'm going to stop prior to the Nicene Creed. All right. And then next week, we'll, um, we'll really dig into the Nicene Creed. Some of the better known theologians of the Trinity, people like uh, Augustine, uh, before him Athanasius, uh, one of my favorites, Hillary, who is sometimes called the Athanasius of the West, uh, and, and some others, the Cappadocians. But uh, we'll deal with the, what are called the anti-Nicenes uh, in this lecture, which are those prior to anti, prior to the Nicene Creed. So we start with somebody that apparently you have been speaking about already today, a man by the name of Theophilus of Antioch. And of course, I thought, well, I, I better touch on Theophilus of Antioch, given, uh, given New Antioch. Um, but Theophilus of Antioch was called by the historian Eusebius, the third bishop of Antioch, uh, after a fellow named Evodius. Um, and then it was, oh, sorry, um, Evodius, sorry, then Ignatius, I believe, and then Theophilus. So maybe third, um, get that right. Um, but one of the reasons Theophilus of Antioch, very, very early, so he, he was born in uh, 115 AD, so very early, died around 181. We don't have births and, and deaths for all of these figures, but where we do, I'll try to mention them. Uh, but one of the things that was notable about Theophilus is that he was the first person to use the word Trinity. Now, this is debated because where he uses the word, it's not crystal clear that he is re referring to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I believe he is, but it's in a passage that, that has to do with creation, and there's a lot of analogies and allegories going on in what he says. And I'm going to be reading some um, passages, most of them brief, some of them a little bit longer this, uh, in this lecture, but just to give you a little bit of a taste for 
um, what these early church fathers wrote concerning the Trinity. So Theophilus of Antioch, um, in his letter to Autolycus, says, In like manner also the three days were before the luminaries, moon, sun, uh, and are types of the Trinity, of God and his word and his wisdom. That's his, that's his, that's his Trinity there. And, uh, and again, it's, it's maybe somewhat debated whether wisdom refers to the Holy Spirit. I, I think probably in, in this case it is, but I'm not sure that that's clear. Uh, and then he adds, and the fourth is the type of man who needs light so that there may be God, the word, wisdom, man, wherefore also on the fourth day the lights were made. Now, it's interesting because the, uh, just as a complete aside, maybe interesting to no one but me, but uh, the, I, I got uh, this, well, no, there's a several different uh, early church histories that touch on Theophilus of Antioch, but one of them, uh, a historian by the name of Fortman, he, he remarks that by adding man, he sort of wrecks his analogy. I actually don't think he does. Uh, and later on, I'm going to suggest somewhat perhaps speculatively, but I, I'll leave it to you and you can work through it scripturally, that there is after the Father, Son, and Spirit, that there is, of course, in a creaturely way, there is a natural outflow that's actually based on the Trinity out into creation and redemption. What I mean by that is we would always avoid saying that creation is necessary because that's a technical piece of language. If you say that creation is necessary, then you're saying that we couldn't imagine a world, you know, without a world. No, God alone is necessary. So we would want to not say that creation is necessary. But I think we could, I think we could say, and maybe somebody will challenge me on this at some point, I think we could say it's inevitable. Because of the nature of Father, Son, and Spirit. And I'll, I'll get into that um, when we get closer to the end of our lectures about why, um, what the proof is for that. So I actually think Theophilus of Antioch in his, you know, in his, yes, maybe some of his speculation, I think actually gets really close to some, some beautiful truth here. Um, we progress to Irenaeus, who was born around maybe 130 or 140. Uh, he died in 202. He was the Bishop of Lyons. Um, and so uh, that was in Gaul uh, or France. And he wrote his, one of his uh, most known works is against heresies. And it was against Gnosticism. And some of you may be aware that, um, that the, you know, something of what the Gnostics held. It's actually a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around exactly what the Gnostics believed and taught. But in the most simplistic terms, maybe too simplistic, but um, they believed that uh, that spiritual things, that pure spiritual things were good and, and earthly things were, were bad. Um, again, that's probably too, that's probably overly simplistic, but um, yeah, quoting from Lethem, he says this, that the Gnostics held that, Je that the Jesus who lived a human life and suffered was different from the Christ who descended on him and then left him and ascended. In contrast, Irenaeus identifies Jesus with the Christ and the Son of God. So, um, and, and this, you know, this kind of heresy crops up every now and, and again. Um, you know, is, is the historical person of Jesus that was born of a virgin, is, is he the, the Son of God eternally? Uh, or is there some way in which the, you know, the Spirit of God sort of chose him and anointed him and just for a work for a period of time? 
Um, it reminds me, and, and maybe somebody will correct me later on because maybe this is not such a good um, connection, but it reminds me of some of what I've heard about the Baha'i uh, faith in regards to there being sort of this messianic God spirit that you know comes on Jesus and came on the last time on their last prophet, Bahula. Uh, I think I'm saying that correctly, but maybe not. Um, so that was Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus also, uh, and again, this is very early stages of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, he uses an image that really, I think, communicates how he conceives of the triunity of God in that he says that, uh, that the father created with his two hands. And by his two hands, he's referring to the son, the spirit. Um, and so, uh, and, and there, you know, with him are his word and his wisdom. And so maybe even in that statement, we can go back to Theophilus of Antioch and go, no, he's, he's, he's definitely talking about the, trend, about, you know, the father, son, and spirit when he says, uh, God, the word, and wisdom. So, uh, and then he also quotes Genesis 1.26, let us make man after our image and likeness, and, and specifically says that that is the triune God there. So that's Irenaeus. Um, in 133 AD, we have a fellow named Athenagoras, who was an Athenian. So he was from Greece. And, uh, and, and he would write against uh, all, of these, all of these fellows here at the early, in these early days of the, uh, of, the, of the early church. They were called apologists. So in most cases, they were combating not heresy from within the church in most cases, but you know, trying to prove God with, you know, amongst the, the, the Romans, the pagans, um, even in some cases, Jews. Uh, and so here in, uh, in a work called A Plea for the Christians, Athenagoras writes this, who then would not be astonished to hear men who speak of God the Father and of God the Son and of the Holy Spirit and who declare both their power in union and their distinction in order called atheists. So what he's saying, the early Christians were called atheists. And, um, and he's saying, listen, that, this doesn't make any sense. We, we believe in God and we believe in God. He says this God, the father, God, the son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe of their power and union and of their distinction in order. Um, quite a, a clear uh, presentation of the gospel, although, as with some of these other early church fathers, they were deficient in some ways in how they spoke about um, the Son and the Holy Spirit, sometimes subordinate, subordinating them in some fashion to the Father. Um, so, for instance, Athenagoras could at times speak of the Son as being the product of the Father, and it's, it's probably, the language there is probably not the best, uh, although you always have to take somebody as they occur in their context and also have to consider what they actually mean by it and not impose upon them the strict language that was later to be agreed upon on them, you know, 100, 200 years earlier. So, um, so that's Athenagoras. And then we come to a major figure that uh, if you are doing work in early church history should be familiar to you. And that is the early church father, Tertullian. And uh, Tertullian is among my very favorite 
early church fathers. Um, and uh, I, I love so much of his writing. I love how he writes. He's, uh, if you're going to read somebody prior to Augustine, I would say read Tertullian. Uh, he's, he's fantastic. And I want to read a couple of uh, extended quotations from Tertullian. Um, Tertullian is, is sometimes stated to be the first person that uses the word Trinity. But as we saw earlier, uh, that probably should go to Theophilus of Antioch. Um, but let me read, let me read an extended quotation to you from Tertullian. He says, wherefore, in accordance with these examples, I assert that there are two, God and his word, the father and his son. For the root and the trunk are two things, but conjoined. And the fountain and stream are two phenomenal appearances, but undivided. And the sun and ray are two forms, but coherent. Everything that issues from another thing is a second thing in relation to that from which it issues. But it is not for that reason separate from it. But where there's a second thing, there are two things. And where there is a third thing, there are three. Makes, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? For the third is the spirit from God and the son. So there you have one of the first um, statements about the, um, the derivation or the procession of the Holy Spirit. In this case, from God and the son. Uh, he goes on to say, as the fruit from the trunk is third from the root. And the canal from the stream is third from the fountain. And the scintillation or the apex from the ray is third from the sun. Nevertheless, nothing becomes foreign to the source whence it derives its properties. In like manner, the Trinity flowing down from the father through continuous and connected gradations interferes not with the divine monarchy, uh, which is, which means the one power of God. That's what that word monarchy means and preserves the status of the divine economy. I say that the father is one, the son is another and the spirit another. Nevertheless, the son is not another than the father by diversity of essence. Now here, uh, Shed is adding some clarifying statements as far as this word of essence. Uh, but I'll read them. Um, I think it's good just to provide some clarity. Um, nevertheless, the son is not another than the father by diversity of essence, but by distribution of essence. Not another by division of essence, but by distinction of essence. Because the father and son are not one and the same person, but one differs from the other in a certain special manner. So here you have Tertullian, um, at least 100 years, I'd have to work out the, the numbers, um, before the Nicene Creed. I think it's, it's quite a bit more than 100 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I'm not sure when, he, when this was written. But, uh, but well over 100 years prior. Um, you know, he's, he's clarifying many things that would not be bettered until the Nicene Creed in regards to the fact that you've got um, the distinction in persons, the fact that, um, you know, that they are, they, that the son is from the father. Um, in another place, Tertullian says, it is necessary that God the father should have God the son in order that he himself may be God the father. And that God the Son should have God the Father, that he himself may be God the Son. Uh, and so you've got this idea of interrelations that we spoke about, I think even in our first lecture, that they're defined by their relationship to one another. So um, Tertullian is, is an excellent um, theologian of the Trinity, uh, albeit he, there are a few places in which he seems to subordinate the Son in a unfitting way 
to the Father, something that was not at this stage, uh, not unusual, uh, but these things were to later to be clarified in the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. But um, Tertullian's contribution says Robert Lethem are clear and important. He uses the words Trinity, he uses the words persons, um, and Lethem says that he is not superseded until Augustine. Um, that's, that's debatable, but that, that's, that's, it's well said that, that Tertullian really had this um, really crucial foundational aspect of his teaching in the early church. I, I, Hillary was before Augustine, and, and I think Hillary um, it certainly does better than Tertullian. But again, that's, um, that's at least 100 years later. So Tertullian would... Uh, one of his works was uh, against Praxeus, who was a modalist. Now, we're going to talk about this when we come to our section on some of the heretics of the early church and who, um, and who they were and what they believed. But, um, but you can just remember that Tertullian wrote against Praxeus. Uh, the, next, the next person we'll touch on is a fellow by the name of Clement of Alexandria. Um, you know, certainly not as, as important as, as Tertullian, uh, but he was born around 155. Um, in his work, The Instructor, he writes, O mystic marvel, the universal Father is one, and one the universal Word, and the Holy Spirit is one and the same everywhere. Um, he writes, the divine Word who is, who is most manifestly true God. Um, he says, there is one unbegotten being, even God who rules over all. And there is one first begotten being by whom all things were made. So you very clearly have a communication, a statement, an assertion of the full deity of the son in Clement of Alexandria. A short while later, we have Hippolytus, uh, or Hippolytus, I am supposing it is, um, 170 AD was when he was born. He was, uh, he died in 236 AD. He was the disciple of Irenaeus. And it's really interesting. If you really get into the early church fathers, you can begin to map out. Uh, and you can do this in many cases very clearly. Who impacted who? Who was whose disciple? Who taught who? And who that person then came to be raised up in this certain bishopric and a certain city. It's really neat to see uh, the, the spread of the gospel in this way in the early church. Um, of course, we can do that to some degree, even in our own lives and in uh, the modern era. But at this stage where you had really crucial figures and really clearly defined um, church leaders, in, at, least to, I mean, at least to some degree, obviously, we, we only have what we have from that um, era. But uh, it's really neat to see this. So Hippolytus was the disciple of Irenaeus. And he opposed a heretic by the name of Noetus, Noetus, uh, who was also a modalist. Again, I'll come, I'll come back to both Noetus and Praxeus. Um, and so his, one of the things that Hippolytus, Hippolytus needed to do was to, um, was to make sure that he communicated that there really are multiple persons in God. Um, so reading, uh, reading what he wrote, I will not say two gods, but one God and two persons. 
For the Father is one, but there are two persons because there is also the Son. And the third person is the Holy Ghost. And so there you have the personality of the Holy Spirit clearly uh, asserted. The word of God, Christ, having risen from the dead, gave therefore this charge to his disciples, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, showing that whosoever omits one of these does not fully glorify God. For through the Trinity, the Father is glorified. The Father willed, the Son wrought, and the Holy Spirit manifested. All the scriptures proclaim this. That sounds like a good statement. Um, He gets into some distinctions there. He gets into some what we call appropriations. You may recall that I've used that word before. It's the idea that even though the, the three persons of God are inseparable and they work inseparably in everything, that yet the scriptures appropriate uh, certain acts in redemption or creation to one of the, uh, of the triune persons because it seems particularly fitting for whatever those reasons are. All right. We'll talk some more about that later on. Um, so that's Hippolytus. I'm going to touch on one other anti-Nicene and then I'm going to talk about some of the heretics. Uh, that existed. Uh, I'm going to finish actually with a, with a story uh, at the end. So um, the story of the two Dionysi. Interesting. Two Dionysi. You can't say Dionys- Dion- Dionys- Dionysius. Hmm. Yeah, Dionysi is better. Um, so the last person that I want to mention here is a fellow by the name of Origen. Now some of you are nodding your heads because you know who this fellow is. Um, one of the reasons you may know who he is because he had some problems in his theology. Nevertheless, what I don't want you to leave your, your education in the early church with thinking is that Origen was somehow unlearned. Origen was among the most learned and also most respected at the time Uh, theologians at at the time. He was um, a man of deep faith. He he was well known for his teaching and he he just, he went a little too far in his speculation uh, and and didn't tie it back to the scriptures enough and and headed off in some wrong directions. Uh, So for instance, he actually too waged war against the, uh, some of the modalists, um, a fellow by the name of Sibelius. But he, uh, one of the things he did is he ended up saying some things about the son that certainly subordinated the son in an unfitting way to the father. Not just subordinating, uh, because this word subordination is actually used in different ways. Um, not only subordinating the son in terms of the order of father and son, but saying that the son, communicating that the son is lesser than the father. Um, And so um, I'm just going to read a little bit from W.T. Shedd. He says, because he said it, he says it really, really well. Origen joined on where his cautious and practical predecessors, Tertullian and Irenaeus had left off, but seeking to unfold the doctrine by a speculative method in which the scriptural data did not receive sufficient examination and combination. He laid the foundation for some radical errors, which had required a whole century of discussion to distinctly detect, explicitly guard against, and condemn. 
Origen seized upon the idea of sonship, which had shaped the views of his predecessors, and which it must be acknowledged is a more frequent idea in the New Testament than the Logos idea, with great energy. This idea led him to discuss the doctrine of the eternal generation of the second person in the Trinity, which was afterwards authoritatively taught by the Nicene symbol, and which enters into that construction of the doctrine of the Trinity in the most thorough manner. Um, I'll, I'll keep reading a little further. So far as Origen's general Trinitarian position is concerned, it is past all doubt that he was himself sincerely, sincerely concerned for the orthodox statement of the doctrine of the Trinity, as it had been made in the Apostles' Creed. He was the most intellectual and ablest opponent um, uh, against the mon monarchianism of his day that they had to contend with. And we have already noticed the fact that by his logic and learning, he brought off Beryl from his Patropassian position. I'll define that shortly. At the same time, he was always ready to attempt the difficult task of reconciling opposing views and particularly of detecting and conceding the element of truth in the mass of heterodoxy in order to concili conciliate the errorist and carry him up to that higher orthodox position where the whole truth is to be seen without the mixture of foreign and contradictory opinions. Origen belonged to that enterprising and adventurous class of theologians who attempt more than they accomplish and more perhaps than the human mind is able to accomplish. In other words, uh, you know, what was said of, of Paul, you know, your great learning is driving you mad, Paul. Hey, you know, maybe that was true of Origen, if not true of Paul. Um, and so Origen, actually, he did some great things in part when it kind of came to the doctrine of the eternal generation of the son, but he also expressed things um, in, in some very incorrect ways that because he was so well-respected, because he was so learned, uh, it found its way into lots of different areas and it, it, it took time to sort of root out those, uh, those problems. So let's, um, let's go back to what are some of these heresies that we have been mentioning. And there's lots of different ways, there's lots of different words that are used actually for defining these heresies. Uh, I'm going to be following one particular writer by the name of Poli that I think does a good job of sort of trying to group them together to some degree, because the challenge is really this, that it's not like there was one fellow that arose and then, you know, everybody got together and said, well, this person's views are wrong. And so, you know, we'll get rid of him and his views and you have to recant. And then the next person arose. It, it was, it was just so, so messy. Uh, you know, one person would arise and in some cases, you know, we don't even have anything or very little um, that we actually know about what this person wrote. But we know he had an influence, and that influence went this way and that way, and, and, and some people mixed it with truth in different varying amounts, and then, you know, people, different councils and creeds would come out, or a certain bishop of that city would condemn someone, and, and it was just, it was a big mess. It was a big mess, and trying to systematize some of these heresies is a challenge in and of itself. So here is one fellow's attempt that I'm going to use. Um, and I'm going to mention four, no, I'm going to mention three sort of categories of heresy at this stage in history. And I'm going to leave out a major one for next week. The major one is one you almost certainly have heard of, and that is Arianism. All right, Arian, Arian controversy. So first of all, we've got what are called the crass, <laughs> the crass monarchists. Um, crass monarchianism. This is the idea that, um, that there is one God, 
and that uh, because there is one God, hang on, I'm just going to find my notes and notes here and make sure I'm, I've got what I, yeah, here we go. Um, there goes my phone. Trying to keep track of time. All right. Um, this is the idea is that, you know, there is, there is one God, he's the father. And if there, you know, if there was, was a son, then he would be a, you know, another, another God. And so really what you've got then is, is they would say is you've got three, you've got the Trinity, sorry, you've got three gods. And so they would really subordinate the son and, and say that, no, you know, there's, there's one power of, of God. Um, so they wanted to protect against ditheism. Um, and so then they made Christ really to be just a mere man, a mere man with the power of God upon him, right? Which to some degree may sound a little bit, although it would come from a different angle, might sound even a little bit like what we heard about the, uh, the Gnostics and their, uh, and their view earlier on. Um, but there was a, just to give you one name of a fellow that, you know, would have been a really sort of strong monarchist in a very clear or crass way, uh, would have been Paul of Samosata, Paul of Samosata. Um, some of the monar monarchians though, were not as, well, not as crass, not as clear in their heresy. Um, that, you know, that one was, would be easy. I don't know. Can we say that? It'd be, it'd be pretty easy to prove that that is not what the Bible teaches, but there were some more subtle versions of this. Um, there's what is called, this would be the second thing here. Now the uh, Patripassian form of monarchism. And those of you that, uh, that know, um, Patri, Passi, you've got the idea here of the father suffering, the father suffering. So what they believed, and it, this gets into a modal, uh, modalism, modal form of the Trinity, although it's, it really is not the doctrine of the Trinity at, at all, is that they believed that the father himself came down in the son and that the father then went through with redemption, including dying on the cross. Now, how, you know, how do you get to this point? You know, who's the son talking to on, on the cross then? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it would seem like that's fairly problematic. Um, but uh, so a couple of people that we've touched on before, Noetus and Praxeus would fall under this heading of Patripassianism, or you could call it the Patripassian form of monarchianism. Um, so for instance, here's an example. At one uh, council, uh, Noetus said, um, you know, what wrong have I done? I adore the one God. I know but one God and none beside him who was born, suffered, and died. That's a problem. That's a problem. If you cannot make distinctions and say that the son came and suffered and died, um, and that you, you would need to talk about how the son is the one God then in a way that he is united to the father through, you know, his divine essence um, or, or some other ways. Um, so that's Patripassianism. Um, the third kind of modalist. Uh, so if the first heading I've called crass monarchian, monarchianism, 
And again, I'm following somebody else's outline here. The second was the Patropassians. The third were the modalists. And these are all varying degrees of, of the same sort of heresy. But Sabellius is the clear example here of um, these more pure modalists. And here you've got something that approaches the Trinity because you've got the idea that you really have, well, no, do you really have? No, I guess you don't. But you've got at least the conception of Father, Son, and Spirit. All right. But they believe that these are just simply emanations of God, not, not persons. And this was, this was quite subtle in some cases. Um, and in fact, Sibelius was, he was a clever theologian. Uh, some of what he wrote, you would agree with if he's simply emphasizing some things rather than defining them. So for instance, one of the things that he believed was that the, um, was that the Old Testament or in the law, You've got the Father revealed in the incarnation. You have the Son revealed. And then in inspiration, uh, you've got the Holy Spirit revealed. Well, as far as sort of a triadic imprint of, of the way in which God works in Revelation, I think I could probably go with that. But if you're defining God that way, you've got a problem. Uh, you've got a problem if you're just saying, you know, God revealed himself as other um, Testament through the law. And he revealed himself as son in the incarnation. Then he revealed himself uh, in, you know, by the Holy spirit. Um, and that these are just simply modes of God's revelation rather than distinct persons working together, working together in everything with one, you know, in one essence, but then also with these things, maybe connecting to them via appropriations. So, um, in some of these cases, there was some, there was some work to root out what these heresies were, because there are certain things they would say that sounded really good. And then you, and then you, you know, something would tweak. And you'd be like, oh, hang, hang on, say that again. You know, that, that didn't sound quite right. And, and, um, and so we'll finish this lecture with a little story about that, about the two Dionysi. Um, Sibelius, um, was excommunicated by Dionysius of, uh, of Alexandria. And Dionysius of Alexandria was actually a disciple of Origen, but he managed to take the, the best of Origen <laughs> rather than some of the worst. Um, and, uh, and he was called Dionysius the Great. He was, he was a phenomenal, well-respected teacher, theologian, bishop. He was a man of high character, which um, you can't take for granted with some of these early church fathers. Some of these early church fathers, we know them because they, you know, they stood firm on the truth and they, you know, they kicked out the heretics. But some of these people were, they weren't nice, some of them. Now, I say that carefully because you need to kick out heretics one way or another, even if it's not nicely. Um, but, but there are some real, some true blemishes on the character of, of some of these people that you might otherwise hold up in high regard for their theology. Uh, but that's not the case with Dion Dionysius the Great of Alexandria. He was actually renowned for his piety, 
He was renowned for his gracious dealings with others. And he was, he was known for his gracious dealings with, um, with even people he disagreed with. So one story of this is that there was controversies. See, none of these controversies are new, right? It's just they're recycled all the time. But there's a controversy at the time of Dionysus of Alexandria about the millennium. Interesting. And uh, there was somebody that, um, you know, that believed that they had a very earthly conception of the millennium. Maybe some of you do hear this uh, this evening as well. Um, maybe you can ask me what my view is afterwards, but I'll just, I'll just keep to the, to the story. Um, and, and Dionysus of Alexandria went and, and, and he sat down with these people that had a very kind of earthly view of, of the millennium. Um, and, and he, and he was actually able to turn them around, um, to, to what was then the accepted view uh, of the millennium. And, uh, and so he, he had great success in a lot of different ways. But one of the things, he was involved with a lot of the controversies of the time being such a leading figure. And one of the controversies that he had to tackle was this Sibelius character and the people that followed him. And so he wrote up a, uh, a, good, a, good, uh, a good work in which he took Sibelius to task. And... Um, and, and he, he had him excommunicated from Alexandria, from the, the city of which he was the bishop. And so, um, you know, he, he did a phenomenal job. Here's the problem. The problem is that in trying to clarify against a modalist, remember the modalist doesn't believe that there are three actual persons. Just believes that there are emanations, modes of, of revelation, all right? And so... Um, in, in combating that, Dionysus of Alexandria ended up making some statements that were, because he's, you know, he's trying to go against that, that were actually problematic. They were subordin subordinationist. Um, some of them even sounded Arian. Uh, and so uh, what happened, but Dionysius of Rome uh, got word of this, because some people complained about this letter, and so Dionysius of Rome then all of a sudden had to settle this dispute. And he wrote a letter back to Dionysius of Alexandria that said, uh, you are right to condemn Sibelius. And, and, and actually in this statement, it was, it was crucial. It kind of laid the groundwork for, for the condemnation of modalism. Uh, but he also corrected Dionysius of Alexandria and said, you need to change the way you talk about the sun. And, uh, and gave him some examples. And, and it's, it's wonderful that uh, Dionysius of Alexandria received that. He, uh, understand that at the time, there was, even though Rome had, I mean, Alexandria was, was held in high regard as well, but Rome was seen maybe as one of the leading cities and leading bishoprics, and yet it didn't at this time have authority over the others. But Dionysius of Alexandria willingly received and submitted to that and, uh, and stated, yes, you know, in, in a couple of cases, he clarified, you know, what he really believes and maybe his language is not quite right. But, um, but there was clarification around that. And, and I'm going to stop with that story because it's a, it's a great story that shows how things get, get, got settled and worked through in the early church. Sometimes it was a lot messier than that. But every once in a while, you had uh, the bishops just coming to a, a wonderful agreement as they stood 
against, um, against heresy, in this case, Sabellianism. So next, in the next lecture, we will deal with, um, with, the, with the Nicene theologians uh, and some, some characters that you may know, uh, Ambrose, Athanasius, um, Hilary, Augustine, the Cappadocians like Gregory Nazianzen, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Basil, uh, and some others, some, some great uh, thinkers, and we'll get some more of their own thoughts because as this gets worked out even more, it starts to really, they start to really express the doctrine of the Trinity in, in, in really beautiful ways, increasingly, I think, beautiful ways. Mm -hmm.